Welcome to Creation Radio and TV. I'm your host, Mike Riddle, the president and founder of Creation Training Initiative, or CTI. Our mission at CTI is to train others to do exactly what I'm doing here today, and that is to be able to speak and teach about God's creation and learn how to refute the teachings of evolutionism. Well, today we have a very exciting topic for you. Matter of fact, it's going to be a topic that destroys half of evolution teaching, and it's called the origin of life. Now, when we talk about evolution, there's really three main areas we can discuss. One is cosmological evolution. That is the study and teachings about how this universe came into existence. Where did the matter come from to create this universe? Talks about the Big Bang, where stars came from, the origin of all the planets. A second area is called the chemical evolution, or dealing with the origin of life. And a third area is biological evolution, sometimes referred to as Darwinian evolution. How do we get this great diversity of life on this planet? Well, today we're going to focus on one of those, the origin of life. And why is this so important? Because, folks, if we can't get that first living cell, then the whole model of Darwin is based on faith. There's nothing to start with. So if we can show the origin of life is not possible by any scientific means, that is a death knell to Darwinian evolution. Well, let's start here. How many different possible ways could life have originated? Well, there's only two ways it could have happened. Either life was created by naturalistic processes, meaning evolution, or life was created by an all-powerful creator God. Well, Mike, you say, there's a third possibility. How about life came from outer space? Well, folks, that doesn't answer the question how life originated. It just pushes the question to outer space. How did life start out there? So there's only two possible ways. Life originated by naturalistic processes, or there had to be a creator God. Now, what about our textbooks? What are they teaching in our schools? Well, let me read to you some quotes from some of our modern textbooks here. And we'll start with an earth science textbook. And this is what they're teaching. Life must have begun during Earth's first 1.1 billion years. Now, notice the words, must have. Those are what I call fuzzy words. When you hear words like must have, it means they have no observational evidence. They just consider evolution true, therefore it must have, but no observational evidence. Here's a quote from a biology textbook. Light's building blocks can form spontaneously. Recent discoveries suggest that life was present within a few hundred million years after Earth's origins. Notice the word suggest again. That's another one of those fuzzy words, meaning they have no observational evidence, but yet they continue to teach this as a fact. Here's another biology textbook. Somehow, these earliest life forms appeared within half a billion years after the formation of Earth's first rocks. Notice the word, somehow. They have no clue how this happened. And then finally, here's a life science textbook. Eventually, some of these large chemicals accumulate became the forerunners of the first cells. Eventually. Notice again the fuzzy words. No observational evidence, but yet they get away with teaching this as a fact, when in fact, the whole idea of the origin of life is based on faith. Now, before we get into this, before we get into 
all the information about the origin of life, we need to build ourselves a foundation. A foundation on some terms. We need to make sure we're familiar with some of these biological terms. And these are going to be very simple. For example, atoms. What are atoms? There are basic building blocks of matter, basic unit of matter. Now, what do atoms do? Well, sometimes atoms will bond together to make things called molecules. And we're familiar with a molecule called water, H2O. So atoms bond together to make molecules. Now, molecules can bond together to make things called amino acids. Now, amino acids are going to be very important in this discussion. Why? Because they're referred to sometimes as the building blocks of life. If we can't get amino acids, we simply can't get life. So this is very critical to getting that first cell. And then finally, our last term, proteins. Amino acids can bond together in a specific order to make something called proteins. So we've got atoms, we've got molecules, we've got amino acids, and we've got proteins. That's all we need for this discussion. Now, let's go back to a famous experiment in the 1950s. 1950s, called the Miller Experiment. And some of you out there may remember this experiment talked about in your textbooks. Matter of fact, it was in the 1950s that it took place, and it is still in our biology textbooks today. Now, what was this Miller experiment all about? Well, Miller created an experiment to create the building blocks of life. Now, notice I didn't say his objective was not to create life, but to get the building blocks of life. He wanted to show that we can get amino acids through naturalistic processes. So what Miller did is he built this thing called a spark chamber in his laboratory. And in there, he tried to simulate the Earth's early atmosphere, what he thought the atmosphere was like, these alleged billions of years ago. So he put gases in such as methane and ammonia, and then he left oxygen out. Then he generated electrical sparks in there to drive the chemical reactions. And then it goes on to state that Miller got amino acids. And folks, that is a fact. Miller did get amino acids. So now they're teaching, why do we need a creator God when we can do it ourselves? That is basically what they're teaching in our state-run schools, our government schools today. You don't need a creator God. We can do it ourselves. But let's take a look at the rest of the story. Those critical parts that have been censored out of our textbooks. It's called science. Did Miller really use random chance events, or did he interject intelligence in this? Because, folks, the whole process of evolution does not allow intelligence. It's all based on random chance events. Secondly, how did Miller know what gases were in the early atmosphere those billions of years ago? He wasn't there. And third, a question they don't even address is what type of amino acids did Miller really get. They just say he got amino acids, and they might mention he got some that are used in life. But folks, the arrangement of amino acids and the type of amino acids are very important here. So let's start with number one. Did Miller use strictly random chance events? No, he did not. He relied on years and years of intelligence in the fields of chemistry and biology to set up his experiment. And secondly, what they don't tell you is he had a trap door in his experiment. And as soon as he got these amino acids, he pulled them out of there so they would not be destroyed. They don't talk about that in the textbooks. Now, secondly, what about the atmosphere? 
Miller did not use oxygen in his experiment. Why did he not put oxygen in there? Well, Miller was a very smart man. He knew, as we know today, that in the presence of oxygen, life could never start. Why? Because oxygen, folks, at the molecular level, destroys chemical bonds. Let me read you some quotes here from some science journals. Now here's a quote from two scientists, one is a geologist, one is an astronomer, and they make this statement. Oxygen is a poisonous gas that oxidizes organic and inorganic materials on a planetary surface. It is quite lethal to organisms that have not evolved protection against it. So right there they're saying, based on observable and repeatable evidence, that oxygen destroys chemical bonds. Now here's another quote from a, another scientist, and he states, it is necessary to exclude oxygen in their evolution models for two reasons. First, all organic compounds are decomposed quickly in the presence of oxygen. Second, trace quantities of oxygen would inhibit the organic molecules from even forming. Did you get what those scientists just said? And folks, this is based on observable and repeatable science. In the presence of oxygen, life cannot start. Even trace amounts will keep it from starting. That's why Miller had to leave oxygen out of his experiment. See, Miller was very smart. But the question is, how did he know there was no oxygen in the early atmosphere? But let's play along with this game for just a moment. Let's just suppose that at some point in the history of this Earth, there was no oxygen in the atmosphere, no free oxygen at all. So we take all the oxygen out of the atmosphere, and once we do that, folks, we have to take something very important out of the air. That is called the ozone. It is made out of oxygen O3. And you know what happens when we take that ozone away? We all become instant crispy critters because the ultraviolet rays of that sun will come down and fry all life or any potential life. Let me read you some quotes on the fact of no oxygen. And this comes from an evaluation of the geologic evidence from Geology Journal back in 1982, folks. We knew this all the way back in 1982, and it states, I quote, there is no scientific proof that Earth ever had a non-oxygen atmosphere such as evolutionists require. Earth's oldest rocks contained evidence being formed in an oxygen atmosphere. In other words, what they're teaching in the schools is absolutely against the scientific evidence. The evidence clearly supports this Earth has always had oxygen in it. But yet in our textbooks, they make this statement, oh, back then the Earth was different, meaning there was no oxygen. Folks, that's not very scientific. That's faith. Well, let me read you a more recent quote here from Nature magazine. A recent Nature publication from December 2011 reports a new technique for measuring the oxygen levels in the Earth's atmosphere some 4.4 billion years ago. The authors found that by studying cerium oxidation states in zircon, a compound formed from volcanic magma, they could ascertain the oxidation levels in the early Earth. Get this now. Their findings suggest that early Earth's oxygen levels were very close to current levels. In other words, folks, the scientific evidence clearly supports this planet has always had oxygen, which means life could never start. But here, here's the situation we really have. If there was oxygen, life can't start.
And if there was no oxygen, life can't start. Let me read your quote from Dr. Michael Denton, PhD in molecular biology, and this man is an evolutionist, and he states in his book, what we have is sort of a catch-22 situation. If we have oxygen, we have no organic compounds. But if we don't have oxygen, we have none either. Folks, this is great news. Life can't start in the presence of oxygen, and it can't start without oxygen. So how did life begin? What are the evolutionists going to do? Well, they come up with another story. They say life didn't start on land. Life started way down deep in the oceans. So far down there, the sun's rays could not penetrate. That's how we're told it happened now. We crawled up out of the oceans. Let me read from you from some of these biology textbooks again. Here's a very popular biology textbook, and I quote, one hypothesis about the origin of life suggests that living things evolved around hot sea vents. In other words, in the oceans. Folks, the problem of life starting in the oceans is that it can't happen. See, there's a process called hydrolysis. Hydro meaning water. Hydrolysis literally means water splitting. As soon as any amino acids might have formed in the oceans, within a matter of weeks, they would have all been destroyed. Let me read you some quotes again about water. And this comes from the Encyclopedia of Science and Technology all the way back in 1982. And it states, Besides breaking up polypeptides, hydrolysis would have destroyed many amino acids. And here's another gentleman, Richard Morse, PhD in physics, and he makes this statement. Furthermore, water tends to break chains of amino acids apart. If any proteins had formed in the oceans 3.5 billion years ago, they would have quickly disintegrated. In other words, we need water to survive but at the molecular level, water destroys these bonds. In other words, water is one of the worst places in the universe for life to begin. So what are our textbooks teaching, folks? It's not science anymore. It's a matter of faith. We need to get back to bringing science into our textbooks and stop teaching this other form of faith. If we can teach one faith, why can't we teach all the other faiths? We need to put evolution to where it really belongs in the education system, and that is the philosophy classroom and not in the science classroom. So, so far, we've come up with three major problems for the origin of life by naturalistic processes. Number one, life cannot start in the presence of oxygen. Number two, life cannot start if there was no oxygen in the atmosphere. And number three, life cannot start in water. There's not many places left. But we do have to address this issue of amino acids. Miller did get amino acids. That is a fact. But let me read to you from the biology textbooks what they're talking about here. Again, here's a very modern biology textbook. And it states, by recreating the early atmosphere and passing electrical spark through the mixture, Miller proved that organic matter, such as amino acids, could have formed spontaneously. Notice it says, by recreating the earlier atmosphere, folks, that's totally false. We know Miller was wrong there. But yet, they continue to put this in the textbooks to deliberately deceive our students. Why can't we just teach science?
Why do you have to bring all this philosophy and faith into the classroom? Now, here's a life science textbook, and it states, Within a week, the mixture darkened, talking about the Miller experiment, in the dark fluid. Miller found some small chemical units that, if joined together, could form proteins, one of the building blocks of life. Well, folks, again, our textbooks are teaching this as if it really happened. Well, first of all, creating amino acids is not the real issue. That's not a hard thing to do. We can create amino acids very easily in the laboratories. The issue is, are they really getting the right type and the right kind of amino acids? That's the critical part, folks, and they don't even mention that in the textbooks. You see, there are hundreds and hundreds of different types of amino acids out there, but only 20 are used in life. They don't talk about that. Only 20 of these hundreds and hundreds of different types of, of amino acids are used in life. In other words, if you get one of these wrong amino acids in there, it could be terrible news for you. Now, these amino acids, they come in two shapes. Now, this is what they don't talk about. This is critical now. They talk about Miller getting amino acids, but let me show you what they're not talking about, and it's called science again, folks. Amino acids come in two shapes. Just like we have a left hand and we have a right hand. Well, left and right hand are about the same, aren't they? Four fingers and a thumb. But folks, they're not quite the same. Look what happens when I put one hand behind the other. Notice the thumb and fingers on the opposite side. See, your hands look the same, but they're really not quite. What they are is mirror images of each other, mirror images. Now, the amino acids came in the same, come in the same type of shape. Guess what we call them? Left-handed amino acids and right-handed amino acids. Now, we do have other terms for them, but predominantly what you're going to see in the books are left-handed amino acids and right-handed amino acids. Well, what's the difference between them? Well, just like our hands, these amino acids are made up of the same components, same atoms. And also like our hands, left and right-handed amino acids are mirror images of each other. Now, why is this so important? This is important, folks, because every single amino acid in every biological protein in your body, and you have trillions of these, is left-handed. You do not have a single right-handed amino acid in any protein in your body. Now, why is that so important? This is important, folks, because of what they purposely do not tell our students in the textbooks. What Miller really ended up with, folks, was an even mixture of 50% left-handed and 50% right-handed amino acids. And ladies and gentlemen, that is not life. That is a poison to life. That is as far away from life as you can get. But it gets better. Every experiment we've ever done since the Miller experiment always ends up with about an even mixture of left and right-handed amino acids, which is not life. Even when we start with all left-handed amino acids, and we can do that, start with all left-handed amino acids, they will naturally start reverting back to a mixture of left and right-handedness. In other words, the natural tendency is always away from life, never towards it. So how could it ever get started? They don't talk about this in the textbooks, but it continues to get better. When we die now, remember, we're made up of 100% left-handed amino acids. And all life, all life, plant, animal, humans, we're all made up of 100% left-handed amino acids. And folks, when we die and we become as dead as we can be, I'm going to let you know that's going to be pretty dead. 
You know what happens to our 100% left-handed amino acids? They start reverting back to a mixture of left and right-handedness. What did Miller really create? See, what he really created was death, a poison to life. Let me read you some quotes on amino acids. This first quote comes from Dr. Jonathan Safradine. He has his Ph.D. in physical chemistry. He understands this process very well. And he makes this statement. Many of life's chemicals come in two forms, left-handed and right-handed. Life requires polymers with all building blocks having the same handedness, meaning left-handed. Proteins have only left-handed amino acids. But ordinary, undirected chemistry, as in the hypothetical primordial soup, would produce equal mixtures of left and right-handed molecules. Wow. Now here's another one from Linus Pauling, a Nobel laureate in chemistry. He understands this process and he states, this is a puzzling fact. All the proteins that have been investigated, obtained from animals and from plants, from higher organisms and from very simple organisms, bacteria, molds, even viruses, are found to have been made of L-amino acids or left-handed amino acids. You see, Scientists know this very well. Life requires 100% left-handed amino acids. But yet, every experiment we've ever done always ends up with a mixture of left and right-handed amino acids. You see, even viruses have left-handed amino acids. Now, I'm going to read you some more quotes here. Hubert Yaki, PhD in physics. A great deal of effort has been expended in finding theories for the origin of life without success. Despite the fact, despite the fact that the Miller experiment failed, they continue to put this known wrong information in textbooks. Why do they do this? Well, let me illustrate this with a simple problem, simple little math problem. Let me give you this problem. Here's the math. How much is 3 plus 1? Now that sounds like a simple problem, but I'm going to set some rules here. And the rule is, you cannot use the number 4. So how much is 3 plus 1 and you cannot use the number 4? Well, some of you might say 7. I'd say that's absolutely right. Some of you might say 15. I'd say, well, that's a correct answer too. Some of you might say 12, and I'd say that's a correct answer also. Well, wait a minute. How can all these different answers like 7 and 15, 12 be correct to a simple little problem like 3 plus 1? Well, here's your solution, folks. If you rule the truth out, if you cannot accept the truth, you've got to accept anything in its place. And ladies and gentlemen, that is exactly what evolution is. They've ruled out the truth of a creator God and must put anything in its place. Folks, what we have seen over these last 40, 50 years is our students are coming out of these high schools, out of these universities, repeating the same mistakes over and over again because we're unwilling to teach true science anymore. We'd rather be teaching evolution than true science. We've got to get back to training our students on real science and not this whole philosophy of evolutionism and life originated by naturalistic processes. Now, Dr. John Ashton, Ph.D. in chemistry, makes this statement. How life began remains one of the fundamental questions of modern science. James Gill, 
a medical doctor, and Tom Woodward, PhD in science. Now, they're going to put this whole issue in perspective now. Now, listen to what they have to say. We boast of human intellectual development as a universal zenith on the one hand, while on the other, we neglect to note our failure to understand fully the working of even one cell in the body. And folks, our bodies have over 60 trillion cells, and we can't even figure one of them out. We can't even get, our best scientists on this planet cannot even get one single biological protein. Let me read some more quotes here. Donald Johnson has his PhD in chemistry and a second PhD in computer and information science. He states, as far as science knows, the law of biogenesis, life arises from life, is still valid. You see, there is a law in science called the law of biogenesis, which states life only comes from life. So where does evolution fit in this, folks? They are openly denying a well-known and observed law of science. And here's another gentleman, Andrew Knoll, professor at Harvard University. And he states, in a nutshell, what is the process? How does life form? The short answer is, we don't really know how life originated on this planet. There have been a variety of experiments that tell us some possible roads, but we remain in substantial ignorance. Folks, it comes down to pride. Mankind has pride. They will not give up their false knowledge. And the Bible has a lot to say about this issue of pride, folks. Let me read you some scriptures. Isaiah chapter 2, verse 11 tells us, The lofty looks of man shall be humbled. The haughtiness of men shall be bowed down. And the Lord alone shall be exalted in that day. Then we go to Psalm chapter 10, verse 4. The wicked in his proud continence does not seek God. God is in none of his thoughts. Folks, that's exactly what we just talked about. The known, observable, repeatable science shows there has to be a creator for life. But yet, they willfully ignore this issue in their pride and hold to this whole philosophy called evolutionism. And then Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, For if anyone thinks himself to be something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. We have many, many out there deceiving themselves into a belief that creation, the origin of life by naturalistic processes, really happened when there's no evidence it could. Folks, if you want to talk about pride, let's talk about wisdom. Let's talk about where wisdom really comes from because that's what seems to be lacking on this issue. And for that, we'll use Colossians chapter 2, verses 3 4 and 8. And it states this about wisdom and knowledge. In whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now this I say list anyone should deceive you with persuasive words. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. Isn't that again describing what we just talked about? Deceitful words 
changing our, year, our young ones' lives, taking them away from a belief in a creator God, taking them away, away from a belief in Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, through these deceptive and empty words that have no science to support them. And finally, let's go to Romans 1, 19 and 20 to kind of bring this to a conclusion, and it states this. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. Folks, God has just told us in his word. We have no excuse. He has given us all the evidence and no one has an excuse for not believing in Creator God. The origin of life, folks, did not happen by naturalistic processes. And no one has an excuse for not believing that it was created. Because God told us. He gave us the evidence. And you are without an excuse for not believing in an almighty, all-powerful Creator God. And His name is Jesus Christ. Thank you, and God bless. If these lessons had been a blessing to you, you might consider financially supporting the Ministry of Creation Training Initiative. You can do this by going to our website, creationtraining.org. Again, that's creationtraining.org. Your tax-deductible donation of just $20, $50 or more a month, or a one-time gift of any amount will make you an education partner in building an army of Christian educators who can teach the biblical account of creation and train others to be able to defend their faith and be biblically faithful to God's word as it states in 1 Peter 3.15. But sanctify the Lord God in your hearts and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you with meekness and fear.